Hey everybody, welcome to Current History. Today we're going to talk about an event that I've been watching unfold across the Pacific in a little place called Hong Kong. Now, unless you've been living under a rock for the last few months, you've probably heard about the ongoing protests in Hong Kong. These protests are a good example to anyone else interested in forcing the government to stop doing something they don't like, like going to war or keeping kids in cages. Yikes. But before I go into what I see as the successes of the Hong Kong protests, you're going to need a whopping dose of historical context to make sense of it. So let's jump right in. But first, a message from my one and only sponsor, from which I have officially now earned one entire dollar. That's more than most people I know have earned from their history degrees. Also, yikes. The island of Hong Kong lies off the southeastern coast of China, very close to the mainland. They were a part of China, but the island was seized by the British during the Opium Wars in the mid-1800s, claiming the island forever and then later taking control of a parcel of land on the mainland, which was the colony's only local source of fresh water under a 100-year lease. That's going to be important. Now, the British stealing a Chinese port as their own personal territory in China led to a Cold War-style arms race by their European competitors. This seizure of Chinese land started some high school-level drama, as countries like France and Germany realized that stealing land from China was even an option, and they started squabbling. Once the European leader Gossip Squad heard that their rivals had seized Hong Kong from China, after Goomba stomping them with a few modern ships, the race was on to collect the new fashionable accessory of a Chinese treaty port. Chinese territory was suddenly more coveted than silly bands or light-up sneakers. Anyone that doesn't want to look like a weak loser feels like they also need to demand territory from China, so they start fighting over it like it's the last slice of turkey at Thanksgiving. But, as you can guess, China was really not a fan of this whole picking them clean like a crowd of vultures fighting over a carrion thing. Getting kicked around by the predatory Europeans really sucked for an empire that had been used to dominating its neighbors for thousands of years. Imagine if the United States lost one important naval battle, and suddenly the British declared Canada would extend a hundred miles further south, and Greenland decided it was going to buy Florida at gunpoint. This offended Chinese nationalists, who wanted a unified and strong Chinese empire to protect them from foreign control. Since the Communist Party took over after the Second World War, the party refers to the period from the 1840s till the 1940s as the Century of Humiliation. So how did the Century of Humiliation affect Hong Kong? The groundwork of the current crisis in Hong Kong requires you to know the peculiar history of Hong Kong in the modern era. First, let's talk about when the British pulled off their Ocean's Eleven-esque heist of a whole damn island. From the British conquest of the island in the 1842 Treaty of Nanking, the British expanded the size of their controlled territory around Hong Kong twice, first in 1860 and then again in 1898. In this 1898 treaty is the important one, because in it, China ceded a piece of territory including parts of the mainland and surrounding islands, but unlike the previous deals, this cession of territory had a 100-year time limit on it. This may have seemed a trivial distinction at the time, because by the 1890s, China was under the dark shadow of a European feeding frenzy, with significant chunks of the Chinese coastline conquered in 
in what China referred to as the Unequal Treaties. Unfortunately for China, they did not have the capabilities to maintain their territorial integrity against European weaponry. During the Second World War, Japan came close to conquering all of China, but with the help of the Allies and their supplies, the Chinese army managed to hold back the Japanese from total victory by retreating inland and fighting a brutal guerrilla campaign long enough for the American campaign in the Pacific and the Soviet in invasion of Manchuria to finally break the Japanese hold over East Asia. Then, as America does the second they get bored of supporting a particular right-wing dictatorship, we promptly ollie the fuck out of China, leaving behind the nationalist army that we were allied with to try to put the pieces of their war-torn country back together. The Chinese Communist Party then promptly goomba-stomped what was left of the nationalists, and ever since the aftermath of the Second World War, the Communist Party has been in power in China. There's still a tiny remnant of nationalist China, who retreated to Taiwan. America was pretty pissed at the communists for taking over China, so they blocked mainland China from taking China's seat at the United Nations. So instead, Taiwan got to cosplay as all of China for many years. Through the conflicts with Japan and the Chinese nationalists, the Chinese communists got their shit together enough to oppose the Europeans who used to walk all over them. And one of the most stinging wounds to their national pride was the land that was still held by Europeans in China, including British-controlled Hong Kong. In 1971, China was allowed into the UN and immediately began pursuing the return of its lost territory. In the, in the late 70s and 80s, negotiations began between the Chinese under Deng Xiaoping and the British under Margaret Thatcher. In these negotiations, the British brought their classic arrogance in assuming they could continue their control of the territory, but they met a different China than they had negotiated with in the late 1800s. This was an industrialized China facing down a British empire that was a shadow of its former self. The Brits attempted to negotiate a shared administration of the island, but the Chinese refused and at one point made it clear that if the British maintained control of Hong Kong past its expiration in 1997, then China would militarily invade and seize the island. The British were not confident that this was a fight they could win, as it was far from a sure thing that their allies would back them up in a massive war to maintain an antiquated colonial holding on the other side of the world. In the end, the British gave up their desire to administer the island, and instead agreed to cede sovereignty over Hong Kong. But they had a few conditions. Hong Kong would be governed under a one-country, two-systems approach. This meant that Hong Kong would become a special administrative region of China, and be treated differently, including drawing up a constitution called the Common Law. Hong Kongers were guaranteed a continued capitalist system within the former British territories, as well as basic civil rights not guaranteed to mainland Chinese people like freedom of the press and freedom of speech. Now, that short history of Hong Kong brings us up to 1997, and it also creates a lot of the problems that we're going to talk about today in modern Hong Kong politics. The One Country, Two Governments Agreement gives Hong Kong significant autonomy on paper, but the Chinese central government in Beijing is like a velociraptor, constantly testing the fences for any new way to reduce Hong Kong's autonomy. Hong Kong is governed by a constitution called the Basic Law, which is 
What established their high degree of autonomy from Beijing in matters of executive, legislative, and judicial powers until the year 2047, 50 years after the handover in 1997? Whatever flowery promises of independence there are on paper, Hong Kong has independence from Beijing about as much as all men were seen as equal in 1776 in the United States. That is to say, it's high-minded bullshit that barely passes as real if you don't look at it too hard. In reality, the Hong Kong government system has Beijing's hook buried deep, and when you, they want to make their puppet dance, they have all kinds of tools at their disposal to get the jig started. For example, the government in Beijing has the right to interpret the Hong Kong common law, which I think blows the whole idea of judicial independence out of the water from the get-go. They've used this interpretive power to swing their dick around, like when being sworn into office in 2016, some Hong Kong politicians made significant changes to the standard swearing-in speech. The oath they are supposed to recite includes a bunch of mentions of Hong Kong as a special administrative region of China, but the newly elected lawmakers decided that didn't quite capture where their loyalties lie. Some began their oath by swearing allegiance to the Hong Kong nation, others swore during their oath, and some referred to China as Xina, an offensive mispronunciation of China from when Japan occupied China during the Second World War. Because of these changes to the oath, the Beijing government stepped in and used its power to interpret the Hong Kong common law to prevent the elected lawmakers from taking their seats. The Chinese government is supposed to be constrained in when it can call in this magical Michael Scott, I declare bankruptcy level of arbitrary power, but in all the time it has utilized this interpretive power, it has never met the lawful requirement to reinterpret Hong Kong's legal code. This is just one example of why the people of Hong Kong are apprehensive about being fully governed by China. Because the Chinese government doesn't follow the law, they just use it as a cudgel to crush dissent, criticism, and whatever other shit they happen to not like on any given day. China runs their legal system like Drew Carey runs whose line is it anyway. The rules are made up and the points don't matter. Another major problem is the huge influence Beijing has over the government of Hong Kong. Hong Kong is supposedly a democracy, as the leaders of the province is supposed to be elected by a universal vote, according to the common law. But it's phrased in the document as an eventual goal, with no real deadline. So, as every homework assignment I've ever been assigned without a deadline could tell you, that's never going to happen. Instead, the government is elected through a weird process where different industry sectors pick a head honcho who they send to represent them in an election committee, which then elects the executive team. So, for example, the hotel industry has 17 members on the election committee, while the finance industry has 18. Because of this setup, it's not so much people that have control of Hong Kong's political system, it's industries. Because of this, the government skews pro-business and pro-Beijing. Well, it's hard to get an honest read on what the people of Hong Kong want because of Beijing's influence. To make matters worse, there's a pretty important barrier to free election of the chief executive in Hong Kong. While the chief executive is elected, first, the Beijing government gets to decide who even gets on the ballot, letting them strike anyone pushing democratic change or dissent from their ballot. 
All of this adds up to a government system disguised as a democracy where the rich and the central government usually get to just do whatever they want, while the people get stepped on and ignored. Whereas American Republicans would put it, a democracy functioning as expected. It's this fraught environment that gives fuel to protests in Hong Kong, which is one of the few remaining ways for ordinary Hong Kongers to push back on a government not working in their best interest. So with the historical stage set and a bit of familiarity with the Hong Kong political system, now we can understand the protests that has been going on for the past few weeks. So this most recent protest is happening because of the government of Hong Kong, led by Carrie Lam, tried to pass a bill that would allow extradition to countries that didn't have an official extradition treaty with Hong Kong. Their justification for introducing this bill came when a Hong Kong resident murdered his girlfriend while in Taiwan. Then, even though he confessed to the murder to the Hong Kong police, they weren't able to arrest him or send him back to Taiwan to stand trial, because they did not have an official extradition agreement. It seems prudent to make sure that Hong Kong is not Tortuga from the Pirates of the Caribbean, because Hong Kong's place as a center of business rests on the rule of law. However, there are some sinister undertones to this proposed law. It would allow Hong Kongers to be extradited to China to face punishment for speaking out against the Chinese regime, which is completely legal in Hong Kong, but not in mainland China. There are a lot of similar problems with mainland China's judicial system, which has been accused of detaining people indefinitely without cause, using torture on Chinese citizens, and other actions that undermine the rule of law. So as you may have seen in the news recently, this extradition bill has inspired massive protests in Hong Kong, with millions of Hong Kongers flooding the streets around the government buildings to protest the bill. Importantly, the protesters just keep showing up. On weekends, on weekdays, they just keep showing up, demanding that the extradition bill be canceled and that Carrie Lam, the chief executive of Hong Kong, steps down. Lam put on a brave face and did her best to ram the legislation through anyway, but after over a week of protests that included as much as one-third of the population of Hong Kong, she finally relented, simply putting the bill on pause, but not fully killing it. This has been seen as not enough, and protesters continue to demand greater concessions than just the temporary pausing of the extradition bill. Ever since the days of mass protests that forced the Hong Kong government to put the bill into purgatory, these protests have changed. The protesters are now calling for the bill to be permanently set aside rather than just put on hold, and they also want Carrie Lam to resign and for the police to apologize for their brutality towards the people of Hong Kong. Since the early days of the protests, they've solidified what they're calling for into five demands. The full withdrawal of the extradition bill, a commission of inquiry into alleged police violence. This would be important because of the widespread police violence against the protesters, including shooting them with tear gas and rampant police violence. Uh, the third item on the demands is retracting the classification of protesters as rioters. The protesters have not been looting jewelry stores or getting drunk and smashing shit. They've been protesting the loss of their political rights. This is also important because it is the basis of jailing these protesters. The fourth item they are demanding is amnesty for arrested protesters. 
because there have been a lot of arrests and the police have not treated those arrested protesters kindly and they face possibly years in prison. And the fifth and final demand is dual universal suffrage. That is, they want to be able to vote both for the chief executive and the legislative council. This would be a change from the current business-centric election system, but would more closely align with the agreements made with the British on how Hong Kong would be governed. Now, if you notice, none of these demands are independence from China. The stated demands of the protesters is not an independent Hong Kong state, it's just that China respect their regional autonomy. That is to say, the right to run their own lives. But if you were from mainland China and were drinking from the spigot of state propaganda, you would believe that these protests are a separatist movement looking to balkanize China and return to the century of humiliation. This lets them tap into China's nationalism and the desire to be whole, both of which are strong forces in a nation that has sought unity for hundreds of years. The protests have continued, albeit without the massive and overwhelming numbers that were before the bill had been paused. One of the major acts of the protesters last week was the storming of the government headquarters, which resulted in mass vandalism of the buildings and various monuments to past leaders that the protesters disapproved of being attacked. Now, while I wouldn't explicitly say that this is the wrong way to protest, I will say that the protesters are treading dangerous ground. It's ridiculous to suggest that protests shouldn't cause problems for the state or disrupt the lives of citizens, because that's the whole point of a protest. You have to negatively impact the people making the decision that you disapprove of for a protest to be successful, otherwise you might as well scream into a pillow at home. In the initial stages of this protest, the government was forced to comply with the wishes of the people under the threat of the continued daily shutdown of the city and further international embarrassment and scrutiny. This is why protests in the United States don't tend to work quite as well, like the protests against Donald Trump that fail to, risk, that fail to achieve tangible results. You need to damage the political ruling class and continue to damage them until your conditions are met. If you march for a day along an approved route and then do not return to the next day, you can be ignored and your protest tossed into the dustbin of history. However, there is another side of this. While disruption and the threat of political consequence is a necessary part of a successful protest, this does not mean resorting to violence and destruction of property is a particularly effective strategy. In the eyes of uncaring moderates, if one side is acting violent and unruly and the other is re reasonable and respectful, the side that's on the receiving end of violence is much more sympathetic. This is the true strength of a protest like Gandhi's salt marches in India. He led large crowds to break British law and collect sea salt at the coast, and when people following his example were brutally beaten by British police officers, it was publicized in the American press and there was international condemnation of British repression in India. This is what makes me afraid for those Hong Kongers who have continued to protest in recent weeks despite Carrie Lam claiming that the extradition bill being put on pause means that it's dead. The protesters continue to call for larger changes than just the recall of the bill, and recently the, there have been more examples of violence and destruction of property from the protesters. Now, this violence on the side of the protesters is nothing compared to what the police are up to. 
especially in the early days of the protest when it was smaller, and now in the later days of the protest, as the protesters commit vandalism of government buildings, the police have engaged in acts of wanton violence, spraying peaceful protesters with clouds of pepper spray and throwing tear gas canisters to disperse crowds. It is this brutal treatment that has propelled the Hong Kong protests into the world media, and the video of protesters being beaten on Reddit is one of the reasons I started focusing on this issue. However, the danger of this violent form of protest is that both Carrie Lam and the Chinese government are just looking for an excuse to call the protesters lawless bandits and deploy the military to put an end to this protest Tiananmen Square style. This would jeopardize the victory in getting the law paused and give China a chance to crack down on dissent in Hong Kong while reducing its autonomy to nothing. So what is it that makes a successful protest? Now, obviously this is going to vary by the particular movement, political climate, and the level of support the movement has. If you're trying to protest how slow the DMV line moves, you might find it difficult to mobilize a million people to, ma to miss days of work protesting. Then again, everyone hates the DMV, so maybe you could get together millions of people to complain about it. But this protest in Hong Kong can teach some lessons on how to run a successful protest in any field. First, and most importantly, you need a cause with a broad appeal. The threat of extradition to China as a punishment for political dissidents against China that is legal in Hong Kong is not explicitly what the bill being protested is about, but the protesters made it about that. Tapping into fear that the way China may, might change the rule of law in Hong Kong when they fully controlled the territory in 2047. With appeals like this, they were able to draw crowds large enough to intimidate the state into taking them seriously. That requires a ton of people, which means you need to draw in everyone you can. Second, you need a plan to, for dealing with state violence. The first response of any government facing opposition from protests is announcing that a few hooligans in the street will never sway what they believe is right and trying to ignore the protesters. It's in this stage that you need more people involved in the protests than can be ignored. Once the protests are large enough that they can't be ignored, the state will inevitably resort to violence, denouncing the protesters as rioters, disturbing the peace, and deploying the police for riot control. Once this step has been reached, protesting becomes a dangerous balancing act. If any of the protesters are responding to police violence by fighting back in any way, the clips that make the news will be of mass protesters throwing bricks at poor innocent cops, and public opinion can easily shift away from support of the protests. However, this does not work in reverse. The police are generally free to pepper spray, tear gas, or fire rubber bullets at unarmed, nonviolent protesters, and that is accepted as just normal crowd control for a while. So what are protesters to do if the other side is allowed to use violence against them, but any responding violence by any protest participants is used to tar and feather the whole movement? Well, this requires a two-pronged strategy. First, the movement has to emphasize nonviolence to the best of its ability, both in its messaging and on the ground during the protest. It only takes one Antifa protester swinging a bike lock moment for a legitimate protest to be lost in a bunch of both sides are evil bullshit. This doesn't mean you need to lie down and take the violence, though. 
One of the things that impressed me the most about the Hong Kong protests were how prepared the protesters were for police violence. From the clips I saw on Reddit, it seemed that many of the protesters wore protective gear, including hard hats, gas masks, and eye protection. With these simple preparatory steps, the protesters were in a much better situation to resist the easy and impersonal crowd control tactics of tear gas and pepper spray. The second prong of this strategy takes advantage of the violence of the state. If your protesters are disciplined and nonviolent and can hold the line through impersonal crowd dispersion tactics, if the, then the police must either resort to direct violence or back down. When they choose direct violence, the video camera is your friend. Police being tear gassed is not front page news, but graphic video of protesters being beaten with batons is, and those same centrists who would condemn you for breaking civility will be forced to acknowledge that this is not a both sides issue, but a David being downtrodden by Goliath story. Along with this point, there are two useful strategies to create public support out of police violence. Strategy one is to get people or groups that it would look bad for the state to use violence against and put them at the head of your protest. For example, during protests against the Vietnam War, police fired on crowds of college students at Kent College, killing four people. This didn't turn public opinion in middle America, because who cares about those yuppie college kids and their unpatriotic protests? Immediately after the shooting, a poll showed that 58% of people supported the police in firing on the protesters. On the other hand, a protest by Vietnam War veterans where they threw their medals over the White House fence was shocking and was not broken up by the police. The group Vietnam Veterans Against the War organized a series of protests of war veterans and parents of soldiers killed in the war, which the police were not deployed against because the optics of police beating up veterans and their parents were terrible, and it was hard to convince policemen to beat up people who looked like them and served their country like them. The second strategy to increase public support in the face of police violence is to force a violent response. This is the strategy Gandhi employed in the salt marches, because rather than simply speaking against the abuses of the government, his civil disobedience forced the state to intensify their violence or else give up enforcement of the laws he was seeking to protest. The goal of a strategy like this is to back the state into a corner where further violence is unseemly and draws protest from other countries or encourages more people to support the protest, or to not enforce the law that is being protested. Either way, if you're planning a protest that will force the state to make changes, you need a plan for dealing with violence on your side and by the state, because they will rarely make changes without a fight. The third critical ingredient is staying power. The entire goal of a protest is to generate pressure on the people in charge of making a decision and to force them to do what you want them to do. This pressure is meaningless if the people you are pressuring think that they can just batten down the hatches and wait you out because you will get distracted in a day or a week by a new cat video or a new Trump tweet. This is one of the things that the Hong Kong protesters have been very strong with. By continuing the protests until the bill they were protesting was paused, then continuing to protest, demanding that the bill be withdrawn and for Carrie Lam to step down. By maintaining the pressure day after day, they make it clear that this course of action by the state will not be tolerated or ignored. 
The fourth critical ingredient for an effective protest is concrete demands. A protest that famously failed on this count was the Occupy movement. They had other elements of a successful protest in that a protest of the rich has a broad appeal and they had staying power by setting up shanty towns outside of major political buildings. However, the movement fell apart because of a lack of unified demands and losing public opinion by harassing small businesses and being a nuisance to average citizens. This is one of the trade-offs of a decentralized movement without a single leader like the movements led by MLK and Gandhi. Without a single spokesperson figurehead, it's harder to maintain the message discipline necessary to have a simple, solid demands that are reasonable for the state to meet. Just a few weeks ago, the violence in Hong Kong has escalated again. A group of protesters and random civilians riding the subway were attacked by masked men in white t-shirts armed with wooden and metal clubs. It's thought that these men are associated with the triads, organized crime operations within Hong Kong. There's no way to know for sure what motivated this attack, but it is thought that they are in league with either the Hong Kong or Chinese state government. This is a move straight out of the protest-busting playbook, because bringing in thugs for hire allows you to both intimidate protesters into staying home and push an argument that the state needs to exert more strict control allowing further crackdowns by law enforcement. This makes it a convenient strategy to sidestep how bad it looks to have police treating civilians with brutality, but it doesn't work as well if everyone automatically assumes you did it anyway. So, where has the United States been in this whole story? Well, the advocates of democracy seem to be asleep at the wheel about this issue, particularly in the executive branch. Trump is looking to cut a trade deal with China so that he can claim a victory from the shambling defeat that has been his ruinous trade war with China, so he's unwilling to stand up to the Chinese on their handling of the situation. Mike Pence recently spoke at an event about how the United States stands with the Hong Kong protesters, but he is not looking to blow up his boss's spot in the ongoing trade negotiations, so he also made it clear that the United States is not looking for a confrontation. The Democrat-led House has passed a bill with Republican support called the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act of 2019, but all the bill really does is review whether the U.S. will continue to give special allowance for trade with Hong Kong based on whether or not China respects their independence. So the bill does something, but it only really, but it only really allows the U.S. to slap China on the wrist if they do something new and horrible in Hong Kong. Another bill being considered would ban U.S. sale of crowd control weapons to the Hong Kong police, which I think would be a much more important step. The U.S. can't exactly dictate what we want other countries to do, but we don't have to be the arsenal of evil. America is the one selling weapons like tear gas to these police forces, and it's bullshit to claim that you have no responsibility when you're selling someone the means of oppressing people. Another interesting complication to this whole story is the island of Taiwan. Like I said earlier, the government of Taiwan is the remnant of the side that lost the Chinese Civil War to the CCP, so they claim they are a sovereign state. China strongly disagrees with this assertion and sees Taiwan as a rogue province of China, so they put enormous pressure on other countries to not recognize Taiwan. The only reason China hasn't taken Taiwan by force is the threat of American intervention. 
So China's hope is that eventually they can convince Taiwan to diplomatically reunify with the mainland. And the plan they've proposed to do this is a one-country, two-systems framework. Ever since these Hong Kong protests have begun and show just how much China is willing to fuck with a nominally separate government, Taiwan has been a flashing warning sign of how bad things will get if they ever agree to this plan. This is also one of the reasons China hasn't gone full Tiananmen Square on these Hong Kong protests and just rolled tanks over the protesters. If they crush this popular uprising, they can kiss their dreams of eventually bringing in Taiwan peacefully goodbye. So that's an explanation of the history of Hong Kong and how it connects to the current protests, along with my analysis on why these Hong Kong protests were so effective at changing government policy. Come 2047, any pretense of one government, two systems is going to fall away, and Hong Kong will be fully controlled by the Chinese Communist Party.